Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church in Somerset, Kentucky. Please make sure to visit us online at phbcsomerset.com. We'll look at Revelation 13 tonight. Tonight we're going to talk about the beast from the sea. As I was preparing for this, I was reminded of a, of a story I heard a long time ago. I had to find it. Oscar Coleman, who is an author, he lived and taught in Europe during World War II. And he wrote a book, Christ and Time. And in that book, he discusses the two terms that he used, D-Day and V-Day. Um, D-Day, or Decision Day, was the day when the Allied forces landed in Normandy uh, and established a beachhead. And if you know the history of, the, of World War II, you'll know that the generals from both sides, when it was all said and done, they looked back and said that was the defining moment Okay, D-Day, Decision Day, was the defining moment that determined the outcome of the war uh, in June of 1944. They understood that if the Nazis had driven the Allies back into the sea, then they would have won the war. But because the Allied armies prevailed at Normandy, they sealed the eventual doom of the Nazi regime. Now, V-Day, that stands for Victory Day. And that was the day that the enemy surrendered and Europe was liberated. Now, what I want you to understand is what happened between D-Day and V-Day. What happened was, did the Germans surrender? No. Uh, did they hold up the white flag? Did Hitler give up? No. None of that. Rather, there were many months of suffering and struggle there were horrendous battles as the Allied armies, little by little, pushed the Nazi forces back. And uh, Oscar Coleman goes on to say that we as Christians are in the same situation. We are living between D-Day and V-Day. Okay, And uh, the, the decisive battle for us was fought by Christ at the cross and the empty tomb. And now we're waiting the day, the day that he appears in the sky when he comes again. I want you to remember that as we jump into Revelation 13 tonight. And I want you to realize we're living between D-Day and V-Day. Okay? Look, if you will, in uh, Revelation 13, we're going to talk about a beast. And I'm just going to read a couple of verses and let's look at the description of the beast. In Revelation 13, um, he says, And I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. So the dragon is standing on the sand of a, of a sea. And he says, And I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. And just imagine this creature coming up out of the water. You're seeing, you know, you're seeing its head. It keeps coming. You see its body. Then you see its feet. And then you kind of take in the whole view. And so I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads. On its horns were ten crowns, and on its heads were blasphemous names. The beast I saw was like a leopard. Now, he didn't say it was a leopard. He says, like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. 
the dragon gave the beast his power, his throne, and great authority. Now, wow. Um, if you are familiar with the Old Testament, then you're going to look at this and go, this sounds kind of crazy because I've never seen a creature like this, but you're going to say, this kind of sounds vaguely familiar. A leopard, a um, bear, and a lion. Where have I heard that before? And you have heard it in Daniel chapter 7 when God gave Daniel this vision. And uh, we'll read that in a little, little while, but not just yet. But uh, what I want you to know is, William Hendrickson says, the fact that this beast that's coming up out of the sea represents every form of worldly government which persecutes the church whenever and wherever it appears in history becomes very clear when we observe that according to verse 2, these four, uh, the four beasts which Daniel saw in his vision in Daniel 7 have been combined into one. Okay, If you read Daniel 7, there's uh, four beasts. Uh, there's one, uh, I may not have the order right, but they're all there like a leopard, a bear, and a lion and then one that had ten horns, and that was the fourth beast. And if you look at this beast, he's a combination of all of that. He's like a leopard, like a bear, like a lion, and he's got ten horns on his head. So he is a, he's a combined version of what you see as four different things in Daniel chapter 7, okay? So what a creature, what a monster, what a beast this is. In Daniel, these four beasts represent four world empires. But here, this composite beast cannot symbolize merely one empire or, or one government. It must indicate all anti-Christian governments. Uh, Michael Wilcox said it was God who created the institution of human government. And that's true. The devil never created anything. Now think about that. The devil never created anything. Uh, he can only pervert what is already there. And as prince of this world, the devil took what God had instituted for mankind's welfare and he made it an instrument of oppression. It's God's will that there should be law and order and it's the devil's achievement that there should so often be bad law and tyrannical order. Okay, Remember, God is a God of order and peace. God is not the author of what? confusion, right? And so there is a difference. Uh, Wilcock goes on to say, and this is well said, he says, we should discern continually between the state that's functioning properly under divine authority and the state acting illegitimately as divine authority, okay? Government's always going to be under God because God created government. Sometimes it gets flipped and government tries to become God, okay? And if you read history, whenever that happens, it never ends well. Um, here's a kind of a long quote, but bear with me. I want to read this to you because some of you are already there and you're waiting for me to catch up. Some of you are going to say, hey, Brother Corey, what do you think about this beast out of sea? I mean, who is he? What is he? Do you think he is the Antichrist? Well, you may be right. Um, I like what one guy says. He says, often in popular prophetic teaching, 
the beast of Revelation 13, is assumed to be the Antichrist. The title Antichrist is not used in Revelation. Okay, The actual term Antichrist, you can't find that word in Revelation. Um, but it does appear five times in the Bible, all used in letters written by John, who also wrote the book of Revelation. Uh, those terms are found in First and Second John. Applying Antichrist language to Revelation's beast may be appropriate with one caveat. As long as we see clearly the reality that is described in John's use of the word. Okay, uh, As he wrote to first century believers, John affirmed, and this is a quote from 1 John 2.18, Children, it's the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now, many antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it's the last hour. Now, according to John, in his day, when it came to the end time clock, if you will, we were in the last hour. So we're at least now still in the last hour, if not less than that, right? Because we're now 2,000 years closer to the, the end, I guess you could say. But he says we were in the last hour then. The 11th hour, I guess you could say, figuratively speaking. He says, how can we recognize Antichrist? John's epistles trace the profile. The Antichrist is anyone, quote, who denies that Jesus is the Christ, because in doing so, he denies the Father and the Son. And every spirit that refuses to confess that Jesus is Christ come in the flesh is the spirit of Antichrist. Although John's readers have heard that a specific and personal expression of Satan's rebellion against Christ is to come at some future point, John wants them to recognize the satanic deceptions that surround them today, to see that this is the last hour and therefore to be on guard. And that's what I want to emphasize tonight. I don't know who the Antichrist is. I'm not going to stand up here and give you well, it could be this one, and it could be that one. Here's what some say, and here's some, what some others say, because that's all speculation. We really don't know. But what I would rather you know is this. I would rather you be able to recognize satanic deception when you see it, and then if you can spot that, we'll worry about figuring out who's Antichrist when that time comes, okay? So I'll leave it there. Now, let's, let's go on for a minute. In verse 3, one of its heads, remember this thing's got seven heads, and the only thing I can think of is what Adrian Rogers used to say, Brian, anything that has no head is dead and two heads is a freak, right? That's what Adrian said. And so I'm looking at this and I'm going, boy, I don't want to mess with this thing. But uh, one of its heads appeared to be fatally wounded, but its fatal wound was healed. The whole earth was amazed and followed the beast. They worshiped the dragon because he gave authority to the beast and they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast? Who is able to wage war against it? Now what you need to know, and I think this is the more important thing here, I like what Dennis Johnson says. He says, we see that this beast is not only an image bearer of the dragon, 
okay? But he's an imitation of the Lamb, the Lamb of God, Jesus. He is a, he's not only an antichrist, he is a false Christ, okay? Um, one of the beast's heads is, is as if it's got a fatal wound, and yet that fatal wound has been healed. And the parallel between that and John's vision of the Lamb, Jesus, standing there in Revelation 5, 6, as if it had been slaughtered, and the beast's head, which appeared to be, you know, fatally wounded, is unmistakable. Um, there's, there's a comparison there. There's a parallel there. And just as Jesus came to life, now the beast has, even though he's received this fatal blow, he's, he's healed. Think about it. A fatal wound kills you. And yet this fatal wound has been healed. So it's almost like this beast is a false Christ that kind of imitates Christ and he deceives the whole world. And everybody's like, wow, look at what this guy can do. Um, one commentator says this monster, this beast, seemed to have a fatal wound exactly the same um, phrase in Greek as in Revelation 5-6 when it referred to the lamb who had been slaughtered and yet lived again. And so there's a link there. Now, this wound, this is what's interesting. Um, another commentary shared this, and I really like this because I've never, I've, never, um, I've never thought of it this way before, but it makes perfect sense. Now, when I was growing up in church and whenever I heard somebody talk about uh, the beast or the Antichrist, the imagination ran wild. Who is he? Who do you think he is? Do you think he's alive today? Do you think he's going to be a Jew or somebody that's not a Jew? How is he going to deceive the whole world? And, and what about this uh, fatal wound that is healed? Is, is it going to be a fake death? Is it going to be some kind of, uh, you know... Thing where everybody thinks he's dead and then he's not. I mean, your imagination can run wild. But here's what I found interesting. Um, G.K. Beale said the wound, this fatal wound that's healed. He says the word for wound there uh, is the same word that's translated plague 11 times elsewhere in Revelation. So it signifies something of divine origin. So he's saying this wound comes from God. And where's the wound at? The head. Okay? What does that remind you of? The wound on the beast's head is none other than that afflicted by Christ at His resurrection, which fulfills Genesis 3.15 when He said to the serpent that the seed of the woman will crush your head. That's good, isn't it? And he says, mention of the sword that struck the beast's head. That's later on. If you'll look in the same chapter 13, go down to verse 14. It deceives those who live on the earth because of the signs that it's permitted to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who live on the earth to make an image of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. So this beast that we're looking at here in the, the first half of Revelation 13 is fatally wounded by a sword, and yet he's healed and he lives. All right? So mention of the sword recalls the end-time prophecy of Isaiah 27, 
In Isaiah 27 verse 1, I quote, In that day the Lord will punish Levithian, which is a sea monster, the fleeing serpent, with his fierce and great and mighty sword, even Levithian, the twisted serpent, and he will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. Now you've got a lot of things going on in that verse. You've got Levithian, which um, is one of those names that we connect to the devil. You've got serpent, which the devil was a serpent. You've got dragon, which we just identified the dragon in Revelation 12, 12 as Satan, okay? And now you, you've got all this going on. So it all fits together. The fact that Isaiah 27.1 is echoed in Revelation 12, um, this concludes or suggests that Christ's death and resurrection is the fulfillment of this prophetic word. And so the fact that one of the heads of the beast is depicted as fatally wounded because of Christ's death and resurrection is borne out by other verses that I could throw at you in Revelation and even the New Testament. So I would say at this point, remember my story at the beginning, World War II. D-Day, V-Day. D-Day was when Jesus died on the cross and three days later rose from the dead. That was the decisive moment when the outcome was assured and we knew that God would win, right? Even though it's been 2,000 years ago even though Jesus hadn't come back yet, even though we're still waiting on the new heaven and the new earth and being with God in glory forever and ever and all that stuff. D-Day happened then. And what happened? Through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, He crushed Satan's head. Now, He was fatally wounded, but He's still being allowed to do His activity until Christ comes back. I'll never forget... Years ago, my granddad, Reese, he, uh, this goes back, okay? This goes back to the days when uh, he had chickens and uh, it was time to uh, have fried chicken for lunch. And so that morning after breakfast, he went out there. You need help? No, I've got it. And he walked over there. And I mean, this was not his first rodeo, right? And one swoop, he grabbed that chicken by the neck and boom, and and then you see that chicken just flopping and filleting. The chicken's dead. He broke its neck. Okay? It's dead. But there for a few moments, I mean major flop and major activity. Same concept here. Satan has been defeated. And it's a decisive blow. But he's still being allowed to do some things until it's, well... Over, over, I guess you could say. Um, Bill goes on to say this, The wound was real and fatal, and yet it seems to have been healed because the enemy is able to continue his activity. It's fatal because from the resurrection onward, Satan's power was fatally restricted and his days numbered. Okay, his days are numbered. But the temporary healing represents the fact that God allows the enemy to continue to use his agents through this period until Christ's return. And uh, that's, that's what I want you to think about. Now, it's interesting here. The more you study this, the more you're going to see 
the true and the false, the real and the imitation. I want you, I want you to notice for a moment the parallels between Christ, the Lamb of God, and this beast that receives everything from the dragon or Satan. Both are slain and they are brought back to life, if you will. We know Christ was. He died on the cross. Three days later, He rose again. But here is this uh, beast who has a fatal wound, but it's healed. Uh, another example is both have followers with their names written on their foreheads. And uh, in um, Revelation 13, if you go on down to verse 16, you talk about the mark of the beast. And by the way, we'll talk about that next week. How's that for a little teaser? Um, and then another thing is both Christ and the beast have horns on their heads. And you might say, well, I don't remember that, Brother Corey. Well, if you go back and look in Revelation chapter 5 in verse 6, it's talking about Jesus. He's the lamb that approaches the, the throne to trick, take the scroll. And in Revelation 5, verse 6, John says, Then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. And so both have horns. Christ has horns. This beast has horns. Uh, that's symbolic, of course, of authority and power. Uh, both have authority over every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. That is mentioned in chapter 5, verse 9 in reference to the Lamb. It's also mentioned here in chapter 13, verse 7. We just hadn't read it yet, but he has that kind of power. Both receive worldwide worship. There are those that worship the Lamb. There are those that worship the beast. And both have a final coming, if you will. One is to destruction, that's the beast, and the other to eternal victory, and that is obviously Jesus Christ. And so you see all of these parallels, these comparisons, these contrasts as you begin to describe the beast. Um, Bill sums it up by saying the beast's career is a kind of parody of Christ's death and resurrection employed to show how the evil spirit behind the beast continues to operate uh, from the time Christ rose from the dead until his return. Uh, I'll, I'll throw out a teaser. Next week, we'll finish the, the rest of chapter 13 where there's a second beast that comes from the earth. And uh, what you will find, just to plant a seed, and you can be thinking about this between now and next week, is just like this beast is comparable to Christ, the Lamb, what you will find on this next beast, the one from the earth, it's basically called later in the book of Revelation, the false prophet, and it compares to the Holy Spirit. And what you have is a holy trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and an unholy trinity of dragging beast, false prophet. And we'll get into all that as we unpeel the layers, but that's kind of where we're going. Now we've looked at a description of the beast. Now let's look at the deeds of this beast. What does he do? What's his agenda? What's, what's he all about? Uh, there, if you will, in um, verse 5, the beast was given a mouth to utter boast and blasphemies. It was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Now, 
We mentioned this last time, I believe. There is this three and a half measurement unit that you see over and over in Revelation. You see time, times, and half a time. That's three and a half. You see 1,260 days, and then you see 42 months. All of those units, time, times, half a time, if that represents a year, that's three and a half years. 1,260 days, three and a half years. 42 months, three and a half years. Different ways of saying the same thing, okay? But just throwing that out there as a pattern to be aware of and watch for. But he's allowed to have authority for 42 months. It began to speak blasphemies against God, to blaspheme His name and His dwelling, those who dwell in heaven. And it was permitted to wage war against the saints and to conquer them. In other words, not only is He going to wage war against uh, the saints, the people of God, Christians, He's going to conquer them. In other words, He's going to do a lot of damage. He's going to win that war, so to speak. Okay, Not the ultimate war, but He's going to win a lot of battles. Uh, and then it says it was also given he it was also given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation, and all those who live on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name was not written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slaughtered. So. In other words, that basically says that everyone in the world that doesn't follow Jesus, they're going to worship the beast. There's going to be no fence stragglers, okay? People are either going to have the mark of the beast and they're going to worship the beast or they're going to follow Jesus and they're going to have the seal of God on their forehead. There, it's going to be darkness and light, wrong or right. There will be no middle of the road. Now, there's a few things here. Let's deal with the one I mentioned first, the 42 months. He is given authority uh, for 42 months. You've heard me refer to this before. Mike, Michael Kukendall has a book where he studies all these images and terms in Revelation and gives you this definition of what they mean. And he says 42 months is a numerical symbol for a short yet intense period of persecution for God's people. It covers the entire church age. He says this term, 42 months, happens twice in Revelation. First, John is not to measure the outer court of the temple because it's been given to the Gentiles and they will trample on the holy city for 42 months. That's in Revelation 11, verse 2. And then the second time it happens is here in chapter 13 when the beast has given, uh, been given you know, the ability to exercise authority for 42 months. In both instances, the idea behind this number is it's a time of persecution. Okay, It's a time of persecution. And when you know what time it is on God's clock, you'll say, that's what season we're in. That's what's going on. Um, one guy said this beast verbal assault on God in heaven became a physical assault against God's people on earth, the saints. And 
the master, Satan, had determined to make war, the master of the beast, that is, Satan, had determined to make war against those who obey God. And one way this will be carried out is to conquer them. And that can only mean that many Christians will be imprisoned and killed. And you will see that in verse 10. Now, let's uh, think about Daniel for a minute. Remember earlier I said that when you look at this beast, he's like a leopard, he's like a bear, he's like a lion, he's got ten horns. Remember that all goes back to Daniel 7. Well, let me make a quote and we'll go to Daniel 7. But uh, Bill said, drawing the reader's attention to the context in Daniel 7 is intended to encourage them about the ultimate outcome of history and their own destiny. Though they suffer from the oppression by the state, they will be the ultimate conquerors and rule eternally with the Son of Man. Look, if you will, in Daniel 7. I'm not going to read it all, but I want to read a key part of it. Read the whole chapter sometime if you want. He describes each of these four beasts. Each beast represents a kingdom. The fourth one has ten horns, and then it gets into these horns, and then there's a little horn, and it gets into all these details. And then Daniel's talking to God, and he's like, what is that? What, what's that all about? What's going on? And we'll pick up at that point. It's Daniel seven twenty one. Daniel says, as I was watching this horn, one of the ten horns on this fourth beast, wage war against the holy ones and was prevailing over them until the Ancient of Days arrived and a judgment was given in favor of the holy ones of the Most High. For the time had come and the holy ones took possession of the kingdom. This is what he said. The fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, different from all the other kingdoms. It will devour the whole earth, trample it down and crush it. The ten horns are ten kings who will rise from this kingdom. Another king different from the previous ones will rise after them and subdue three kings. He will speak words against the Most High and oppress the Holy Ones of the Most High. He will intend to change religious festivals and laws and the Holy Ones will be handed over to him, watch this, for a time, times, and half a time. Do you remember what I said a while ago? You have these three units that are the same, but they're expressed in different ways. You've got a time, times, and half a time, three and a half. You've got 1,260 days, which is three and a half years. And then you got 42 months, which is three and a half years. And so you're saying the same thing, but you're saying it in different ways. And so the fact that he throws that out there, again, this unit is associated with persecution of God's people. Okay? And so look at what he says in verse 29, uh, excuse me, 26 of Daniel 7. But the court will convene, and his dominion will be taken away to be completely destroyed forever. The king, the kingdom. Dominion and greatness of the kingdoms under all of heaven will be given to the people, the holy ones of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will serve and obey Him. 
And so even in Daniel, when you go back that far down the timeline of history, God is showing him things about the future. Here are these four beasts. They all represent four different kingdoms. And now in John's time, he's looking back at that, and God gives him a vision of a beast that's kind of a conglomeration of all of those characteristics rolled up into one with the same agenda, with the same aim to, to, to destroy God's people, to persecute them, to conquer them with the same unit of time, three and a half, whether it be a time, times half a time, or 42 months. And yet the outcome in Daniel is when the Ancient of day, Days comes. Now, Ancient of Days is another name for God. When God comes, when New Testament vernacular, when Christ comes, then He will judge. And that's what it means when the court convenes. When Christ comes, He will judge. And that's when the consequences come. That's when this beast will be put down and he'll be defeated and destroyed forever and the kingdom will be given to the holy ones and that means that you and I will rule and reign with him forever because his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom that will never end. Amen, right? Isn't that good? I like that. That's good. Now, there's a lot here. There's a lot of... Uh, there's a lot of potholes that we could start digging in, and um, I'd love to talk to you if you got questions about it. I'm still digging those potholes, okay? Don't want to confuse you. I want to stick to the forest and not get lost in the trees. But let's read one last thing, and that is in verse 9 and 10, Revelation 13. We've, we've described this beast. We've looked at his deeds, what his agenda, what his aim is. Now, there's one last thing, and this is the takeaway for the lesson tonight. What, what do we do with this? And it's a call of discernment for the saints. Notice what it says in verse 9. If anyone has ears to hear, let him listen. If anyone is to be taken captive, into captivity he goes. If anyone is to be killed with a sword... With a sword, he'll be killed. This calls for endurance and faithfulness from the saints. Now, this is one of those things that when you start looking at the context and the clues, you may not like it. It, may not, it might make you uh, uncomfortable. Um, some people, when they teach Revelation, they pick and choose what parts of the book apply to the church and what parts apply to Israel. The book was written to the church, okay? If you read in the beginning, it's God's vision uh, from Christ to an angel or a messenger to the churches, to seven churches to be exact. And, um, and what's interesting to me is to all seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, let him listen. The only time you see this language, this phrase, he who has an ear, let him hear, is right here in Revelation 13 and the seven times he mentions it to the seven churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. He's still talking to the church. 
I mean, that's, that's context, that's clues, that's consistent. Uh, he's talking to the church. And he calls the saints there in verse 10. This calls for endurance and faithfulness from the saints. Um, the message is that Christians should willingly endure persecution knowing that ultimately their persecutors will be destroyed in the same way that their lives are being taken. Those who kill will themselves be killed. And, one, and Herschel Hobbes says this. Herschel Hobbes says this interpretation makes sense in the light of the next sentence. Verse 10. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints or the endurance and faithfulness from the saints. Patience is a strong word describing one who could take all his opponent through at him and yet possess enough reserve strength to countercharge the victory. Remember Rocky? Which one, right? One, two, three, four, five. There are a bunch of those movies, right? Remember he's in, in there and he's taking the punches. Boom, 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 boom. And you're like, man, he's getting clobbered. Man, he's getting killed. And he takes it, he takes it, he takes it. And then one more round, right? And he wins. Well, here's what we see in this word endurance or patience, depending on uh, your, your Bible translation you're using. It's the idea that you're taking everything that someone can throw at you, and yet there's enough reserve strength to countercharge the victory. And that's what uh, Herschel Hobbes says. Uh, Dean Davis says this verse 10 uh, steals, uh, galvanizes the persecuted church of all ages with a strong assurance of final justice upon her foes. Um, here's what I'm saying. Whenever this happens in the timeline of history, this person has been allowed to do this. Notice that the dragon gives his authority, his throne, and his powers to this beast. And notice that he is allowed, okay, by God, to exercise authority for 42 months. And he blasphemes God, he blasphemes heaven, and then he goes after the saints, okay, to persecute them, to conquer them. And for a while... He succeeds, and then the call goes out. If anyone has ears to hear, let him listen, okay? Now, what would the rest of that phrase say if it was Revelation 2 and 3? If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And here's what the Spirit would be saying. If you're alive during this time, and if you're if this is what time it is on God's clock, and if this is the season that we're in, then if anyone is to be taken captive, that's where they'll go. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, that's exactly what will happen. And then it says, this calls for endurance and faithfulness from the saints. You know, we're, we're blessed in America. We're blessed to be on the western side of the globe. We've been shielded from a lot. But if you look at our brothers and sisters in other countries and other places, persecution is a daily experience for them. We just don't think about it because we don't have to deal with it like they do. I'm reminded of Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. I've got two more passages and I'm going to wrap this up. But in Philippians 1, 27, Paul said to the church, 
just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then, whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I will hear about you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel. Now watch this. Not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation, and this is from God. I think a child of God, someone who truly belongs to Jesus Christ, they may not like death. I don't want to think about it myself. I love what the actor Woody Allen said. He says, I don't mind death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. You, you know what I'm talking about. I don't want to be there when it happens, but hey, it's going to happen. And here's the thing. If you know Jesus Christ, then you can look at death differently than most other people. Because Paul went on to say in Philippians that for me to live is Christ, to die is what? Gain. Now, we always talk about it's a loss, and it is. Okay, let's, let's not sugarcoat that. Whenever there's a death, there's always a loss because the rest of us, we've lost a loved one. We've lost someone we care about, and we grieve, and we mourn, and we miss them, and I get that. But Paul said, look, for me to live as Christ, to die is gain. Okay, it's not a loss because if I'm no longer here, guess where I'm at? To be absent from the body is to be present with Jesus. And what can be better than that, right? And so we have this assurance that if we are a child of God, if we are saved, no matter what we have to go through, if we live for Christ, then may we be willing to die for Christ if it's necessary. And if we have to die for Christ, we can do it in that moment by the grace of God with no fear. And according to Paul in Philippians 1.27, uh, when we show no fear at the sign of our death, uh, then it's a sign of their destruction. That's what Scripture says. So my challenge to you, and I'm still in Philippians because I've got one last takeaway. My challenge for you tonight as you meditate on this and think about this, and I know this is a whole lot, and we're going to go deeper in this next week, okay? I just had to simplify it somewhere. But the challenge is for you and I to keep growing in our walk with Christ. Philippians 1, verses 9 through 11, has a prayer. And this is going to be my prayer for you. I want to read it, and then I want to pray it. Philippians 1, 9, Paul said, And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment, so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Well, let's pray. Father, we come before you tonight. Lord, there's so much here that it's hard to take in. Lord, it's, it's mind-boggling to realize that we do live in a fallen world. And that even though we know in the end you win, we still wonder what we're going to have to go through before we get there. That we know that this is an evil world, a fallen world, and that the devil is alive and he is real. And he is attacking your people around the world. He wants to attack the truth. He wants to attack your children. 
He wants to persecute them. He wants to shut them down. He wants to destroy them. And even though he might do a lot of damage, we know in the end, Lord, you show up and you win. And you rule and you reign forever. And if we belong to you, we rule and reign with you and enjoy the king of the kingdom forever and ever. Lord, help us to remember what you did for us. That for the joy set before you, you endured the cross, despising its shame. Lord, help us for the joy set before us. Be willing to lay down our lives for you. Knowing that one day, someday, you will right every wrong. And you will rule and reign forever. And no matter what we sacrifice, even if it is our own life, it pales compared to what you sacrificed for us to purchase our salvation. Lord, I pray tonight, may we grow in your love. May we grow in knowledge and discernment. May we be able to spot deception, particularly satanic deception, when we see it, when we encounter it. Let us grow and become pure and blameless so that when we stand before you on that day, Lord, will be filled with the fruit of your righteousness and we can praise your holy name. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church. To learn more about the church, find out meeting times, or learn how to contact the pastor, please visit phbcsummerset.com.